because I think people forget, I don't like you. I'm not even, I don't care about you when you're just a piece of paper. Make me care to read the rest of this resume. Are you in a leadership role trying to figure out how to convince others to change their mind? Have you ever wondered why is leading and influencing others so darn hard? Are you looking for practical answers to these two vital questions? If so, welcome to my podcast, Closing the Gap with Denise Cooper. I'm your host, Denise Cooper, and I am a storyteller. I interview thought leaders and people just like you who are learning and practicing the art and expanding on the science of leadership. Listen as my guests and I talk about what it takes to be a remarkable leader in the 21st century. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening to everyone. I so appreciate you coming in. You know who this is. This is Denise Cooper, and you are listening to Closing the Gap with Denise Cooper. You can find it on Apple, Spotify, you name it, wherever you listen to your podcast. Please, please, please download, follow and make sure that you don't miss an episode. My guest today is Debbie Snow Walsh. And this is going to be interesting because I've told you before that I've got a continuous podcast with Pam Brooks. Debbie is going to be my other partner. And Debbie is a builder of organizations and talent. She focused on DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion long before it became a trend. In fact, that is how I met her. And I'm not going to tell you when, because I only admit to 25 years, because everything else is irrelevant before then. That's where I met her. And we have developed a deep, long passion and friendship that has spanned decades. She is passionate about making sure that companies have the right talent and in the right roles. She has been both inside and out. So she's been an executive search, owning her own firm, Debbie Snow Walsh, which is a talent organization out of Chicago. She has worked with the big companies from AXA Equitable to Gap to Pfizer to JP Morgan Chase and Prudentials, among a host of other companies that she has worked with, both inside and out. She focuses on talent, the acquisition, development, management, and assimilation experience and retention. Her expertise is in consulting with companies on their internal policies and practices to make them efficient executive search and executive coaching. She has been involved with what used to be the Human Resources Planning Society, which is now part of SHRM, Society for Human Resource People. She was part of the original CREATE team, which was a think tank that envisioned what HR was going to be over the next five to 10 years. Currently, she has just decided to go back inside and has accepted a role as the head of talent for a company called Brown and Brown Insurance Companies. I want to start today from a different point of view. Normally, we talk a lot about business and leadership and executive stuff in terms of how do you engage your workforce? How do you create the kind of innovation and performance that is not only inclusive, but high performing and can manage the changes in the marketplace? And we talk about all kinds of things from how AI is coming in to emotional intelligence to AI is artificial intelligence. If you don't know, emotional intelligence, which is EI, as well as other things. But today, every month, I have two people who are kind of set. One is Debbie Snow Walsh, who is on the call with me today. 
And we're going to talk specifically about this idea of the great resignation, but from a different point of view. What it's presented is, hey, we're not quite sure it's as much a resignation anymore than it has been before. But it is about the kinds of choices people are making and why they're making the choices they're making. And that starts with the resume and the interview. And what she and I both have found in our experience is is that neither the hiring manager nor the person who is interviewing really understand what this dance is that is called, am I the right fit? Is this the right company for me? Is this the kind of work I want to do? Will this person be good at doing this work for us? It is always a collaboration. And yet we have a tough time finding out who would be a good collaborator in our world, whether you're the employee or you're the executive or you're just a hiring manager, first-line supervisor. And a lot of that is fueling this great resignation. But as the economy continues to move on, economists are predicting that there's going to be a great right-sizing because as it's tougher to make ends meet to make those numbers that have been tremendous over the last years, executives are starting to look to say, given what we have going forward, do we have the right people who are capable, adaptable, and flexible enough to move with us as we shift, as the economy shifts, and as the needs of our customers and our shareholders change? So that's going to be today's conversation. The other person I talked to is Pam Richardson. And she, she and I talk about the environment that you create, the culture that you build. And so I ask you to go back and listen to some of the podcasts that we've done if you're interested in those things. But without further ado, let me introduce you to, hey, Debbie, how are you doing? Good morning. Good morning, Denise. I'm always thrilled to be with you. We've been doing this several months. And of course, we've been friends a long time. So we share similar thoughts, similar beliefs, similar values, but really are great observers of what's going on in the business community, the business world with people's careers. So thank you so much for having me again. Great, great. We're not going to say how many years we've known each other because it's been a long time. However, I do think it would be helpful for people to get a little bit of your background and maybe a little bit of how we met in this process here. So would you share a little bit of that? Sure, sure. I started my career in sales. One of those people that was recruited right from college to sell, you know, multi-million dollar packages to the Fortune 50. I didn't know who the Fortune 50 was. I didn't know what big packages were. And when I was selling those benefit packages, I was good at it. I, you know, I loved it. I loved being out in the field. I loved interacting with big business. The more matrix managed, the more complex the organization was, the better I liked it. And from that, I got more and more opportunity to do that at a higher and higher level, and then got recruited myself out of that industry into a totally different industry that I knew nothing about. And that's been the theme that's run through my own career. But I did know people, I did know how to sell, I did know how to lead, and did great things in in that industry, learned the industry. So I'm a great person to talk about. You can teach people the business, you can't teach them the skills that they need to be successful. They have those. Uh, Then started to get recruited by two of the big companies in search. And the reason I went into search is because I was very focused on back in the late 90s, diversity. 
and it was before anybody was ready to really talk seriously about it, but it was something that I thought was important because I was an executive female. And so I started my own search firm without ever having done a search before. Search is really hard work. It is not complex, just mm-hmm. really hard work and very successful at that and loved it. And now I'm back inside with an organization that I love helping them to develop their strategies and bring in impactful players into their very busy and growing organization. And I'm thrilled with that. Again, a a company that I knew nothing about that I'm just thrilled to be part of. Yeah. Okay. So let's unpack a little bit of that. The the thing that kind of tickled me a little bit was you said search is hard work, but it's not complex work. What do you mean by that? It's a sales job, Denise. Search is a sales job. Just the same way that you have a prospect and you prospect people that you're going to sell to, you source candidates for a particular role with particular skills. And that's the way the dance starts with on the sales side with prospecting, on the search side with sourcing. And when you come to a list of prospects, if you're in sales, sources, if you're in search, you start talking to and listening to people who can help you get to the right candidate. And in doing that, you know, you're spending a lot of time because it's time consuming. LinkedIn has made it somewhat easier if people were all on LinkedIn. We both know that there's a lot of people that are not on LinkedIn, especially level or the people that have put them on LinkedIn are administrative assistants and they themselves have not been part of the LinkedIn community, nor are they, nor do they communicate that way. So at the, at the level of work that I do, it's talking to my network and building on other people's networks to find candidates that will be successful in the community that I'm in. So that's what I mean about, you know, how you get into doing search. It's not complex. It's just really hard work because once you started talking to these candidates and done the time consuming work of sourcing them, then it's finding the right fit with the company that you're doing the work for, or in my my company and finding the cultural fit. The skills are check boxes. Either they have it or they don't. Either they've done it or they haven't. Either they've participated or they haven't. But the cultural fit is the key. Just as you introduced this, will the person that I select be good at doing the work I have in the environment I have? Will they be collaborative? And, you know, for years, there's been two tracks. Either you're an individual performer or you're a leader. Mm-hmm. Yep. Make you teach you how to be a leader. I can't so much teach you about individual performance. Either you've got the nugget to be results driven and performance oriented, or you don't. But to be part of a team and collaborate with a team or move up to lead a team is a different skill set. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great salespeople don't always make great sales managers. Right, right, right. And great individual contributors don't always make good managers. But the only way in most organizations, probably 90 plus percent of them, the only way that you can move up in a ladder, in a a career ladder inside a company, or even if you're not even within the same company, you're moving from company to company. The only way to move up is through being a manager. Correct. Correct. You can make a lot of money as an individual performer if you're a salesperson or a sales producer, but in terms of moving up to lead the company, can't do it without that leadership skill, that leadership gene, that leadership edge. And that's a skill set that has to be taught. Yeah. And the other side is, is that it's interesting that we put such a limited value on technical excellence, particularly as a complex 
world that we're in now. And it's so data driven or data informed. We have to be data informed all the time, which is interesting because I think what I've seen change over the years is you could be an individual contributor and be a terrible collaborator. That can't happen today. No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. We have, and my my point of this was there used to be two tracks. Mm-hmm. Those tracks come closer and closer together and are now running parallel and very close together. They're not always on top of one another, but they're very closely paralleled because you're absolutely right. You cannot get along in an organization in any kind of family situation of which an organization is one without collaborating. You need the guy next to you. You need the person above you. You need the person below you in order to be successful. You know, the old adage, you know, you can't get the scoop if you're not part of the group. You need to have all the information from all sides, which is why DEI is so necessary and so effective, because you also need to have the opinions of people who come from a different point of view. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the other side of it is, is I I really want to break down this idea of collaboration, because to me, collaboration and leadership are tied at the hip. And both of them are built on a foundation of your ability to create a a way in which you engage people through communication, how uh, how you are, and your ability to have a vision so that you can influence other people to do what is necessary to get in it. And so whether you're an individual contributor or you're a manager, it doesn't really matter. If you don't have those three skills, influencing, communication, ability to break down complex ideas into something people can engage in and get them to do what you need them to do, you're going to lose in organizations today. I think that's absolutely right. You know, comes down to, I did this a long time ago, but it's Debbie Walsh's big five. You know, the ability to articulate a vision and get people to march into hell to follow it. Mm -hmm. Ability to drive financial results through teams of people. I say this all the time because my daughter's Jesuit educated. We could be doing this for the glory of God, but the reality is we're doing it for money. So we need to be able to drive those financial results. We need to be able to be a change agent, changing economy, changing industries, changing world environments. Look what this war has done to us. You know, it's just changed everything on top of COVID. COVID was just an overlay. All these things are just overlays over the changing economies and the changing world. You know, the ability to develop people above you because we're involved in developing our CEOs and making them better at what they do to develop your colleagues and they develop you, the people next to you, as well as developing the people that are perceived to be underneath you, that you're bringing up, that you're teaching. And you've got to do the whole thing with ethics and integrity. Otherwise, why are you doing it? Yeah. And so let's let's kind of move into the resume and the purpose of a resume, because I think, you know, you've done it. I've got a little, you know, here's five questions. If you if whenever you're preparing your resume, whatever you're preparing your interview, you ought to be able to answer the five things that you talked about, the five questions of, when have you led other people and convinced them to do things that they wouldn't other be able to do? That's vision. The money. When can you show and demonstrate that you've actually contributed to the organization's goals, whether it's money, time, attention, whatever it is, is you're in there? Can you change? Can you see change coming around the corner from your technical point of view? But can you adapt as necessary? When have you developed others? 
And I always say it's not just above and below, but are you a co-collaborator and developer of people who are around you? And that works just as well, as well as what are your values and ethics? And so you ought to be able to come up with five buckets of things throughout your career that you should be able to speak about those things on your resume and then from your resume to the interview. How do you feel about that? I mean, because I'm looking at resumes now, Debbie, they are awful (laughs) for executive. I mean, and so, you know, it's not like I'm dealing with, you know, young people, young in their career or who have changed their career. I'm talking about people who have been in this 15, 20, 25 years old, 25 years, and their resumes are awful. I think that people come to resumes, unfortunately, with a view of writing down everything they've been involved in, everything they've done. They're focused on what was part of their job description, Mm -hmm. what their accomplishments were, what results they brought to the organization, how they made impact. Impact has always been a big word, but never more so than now. You're working for a a corporation who's paying you to accomplish and to drive results. And so the resume should, in my opinion, every bullet point that's on a resume should end with the, you know, should answer the question resulting in, or to make it even worse, so what? Mm -hmm. I did this, this, that, you know, did this, did this, did this, did this, did this. Yeah. And that resulted in what for the corporation? So I don't want a list of the things you did. I want a list of the things you accomplished. Yeah. Don't want them in a separate place at the top of the page because chronologically, I need to know where you accomplished. So my belief is that a simple resume is, you know, a summary state, you know, your your name, your phone number, your email address. I don't want to know where you live unless it's important to the job. Mm-hmm. I surely know the street you live on, but right. I don't really know what city you live in because it's it's immaterial now. It doesn't make any difference. Most is re- is remote. And if it's not remote, it's some kind of travel involved. So then I just want a summary statement, who you are, what you do. I'm, you know, and this is the place where you can use all the adjectives you want, but you better be able to back them up someplace in the resume. And then chronological listing of the company that you worked for, the dates that you were there and the titles that you had and what the accomplishments were under those titles. The bottom of it should be your education, any certificates or credentials you hold. That's it. I don't need to know that you play golf, nor do I care whether you're a marathon runner, except Being a marathon runner or being exceptional at golf does demonstrate to me that you have a stick-to-itiveness and that you've done something that's an accomplishment. If that can be translated into an accomplishment, a terrific biker, I don't know what you call it, but you you go on 100-mile bike rides, that's sticking to something that requires a long-term commitment. And so word it that way instead of just saying golfing and all of those. I think the other thing that you taught me over the years is the first thing you ought to see under the company name is why did they hire you? Great idea. You were were hired to accomplish. And then everything under that says, did you or did you not accomplish it? So as you think about it, I work for the ABC company. They hired me to streamline and put in a system whereby we could close the books in five days. Previously, they were at two months. Now we can boom, 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 boom. And here's what I did to put in there. That speaks volumes right there. And as someone who's having to look at this, because I think people forget 
I don't like you. I'm not even, I don't care about you when you're just a piece of paper. Make me care to read the rest of this resume. No, I think that's absolutely great. I think that's a super, a super thing to do. And also it segues into what have you accomplished at every exactly. place. It segues into that. And those are the things, I mean, I, I believe that people need to expect that the CEO is reading the resume. Mm-hmm. If the CEO is going to make an investment in you and decide to pay you to come to him or her, what is it that you bring that makes you worth that investment? That's all anybody cares about. I mean, and in reality, I mean, I know this isn't what everybody wants to hear, but this is the truth. You see a resume because someone's put it in front of you and for however it got to you, it got to you, you review it really quickly, you put it on the going to see pile or the not going to work pile just by your perusal of it. If it's on the going to see pile, the next time you look at that resume is probably while your hands on the doorknob walking into the interview. Mm -hmm. I'd like to say that that doesn't happen, but that's the reality. Yeah. Whoever the leader is that's doing the interview, the next time they look at that resume is when their hand is on the doorknob walking in to talk to the candidate. And you're absolutely right. I don't like you. I don't care much about you. It's your job to engage me. Mm-hmm. That's something that I think people miss, that it's their responsibility to get engagement from the interviewer, yeah. but interviewer's responsibility to get an understanding of what whether that person's values will fit with the organization, because they already know what the accomplishments are. They've got the resume. Right. They right. don't need it about checking the boxes. And if they're going down the list, you know, because we now have these behavioral interviews, et cetera. What they're trying to figure out is, A, have you done what you said you're doing? And, and, but not so much verifying what you did, but they're listening for how you think, how you accomplished what right. you did. Not that you did it as much as how did you accomplish it? What did it look like? Who were you engaged with? What were the, the, the challenges that you had to face in doing that? And I want to know one step more. I want to know how they felt about it. So Mm -hmm. when I'm asking the question and I've gotten through the niceties of it and I've allowed them to talk to me about some of the things that they want, I always make sure I ask them, what is it that you want me to know about you that you're not going to let me leave this room until I do know, which puts the onus on them. And then I always ask them to tell me about a time when they felt like they were at exactly the right place with the right company, with the right leader in the right environment to accomplish what they felt they were most proud of. And tell me how that felt and why that was important. The other question I ask is, you know, tell me about these things that you're most proud of. Why did it make you feel proud? Mm -hmm. And it's not, well, you know, I accomplished blah, blah, blah. No, I want to know deeper. Why did that matter so much to you that you did that thing for that company? And then I also want them to tell me about, you know, why that company was the company they really wanted to work for and they felt compelled to be successful there. That will to whether or not they're going to fit for me. Right, right. And it's funny because I have someone who, who I coach and she's a totally accomplished woman, totally accomplished. And, but she's never happy. And so the other day we were talking about what would make you happy in these roles. And it was very interesting because what would make her happy? I said, what, what things in your life have made you happy? 
And it all boiled back to someone unexpectedly saying, oh my God, that was a brilliant idea, or you are really good. Wasn't the money. She loved the work. She didn't, in fact, she was so naturally good at the work that it didn't feel like work. So she didn't feel like she was earning anything. But when she said that, I said, you need to say that in an interview. And that impressed them more than anything else. That impressed them more than anything else is that she felt good when somebody else appreciated her work. Simple thing. And it's easy to do. And that's, you know, I think there's many, many times when we, when we don't acknowledge the strengths of people yeah. when happening. I mean, I, I think, you know, people are afraid to say that, but it'll sound like they're sucking up if it's, yep. you know, boss. If it's something to a subordinate, it will sound condescending. Mm-hmm. I think there's so many concerns people have about not saying the right thing in the right way that just to be able to say, you know what, you're really good at this and I am not. Mm-hmm. You have no idea the amount of stress you relieve for me of your being able to do this with me and be good at it because that is not one of my strengths. It's yeah. suffocating in some ways, but it, it's also really does make the other person feel great that they were able to help you. I always go from the premise that people really want to do their best work. They want to do their best work. And if you give them the opportunity to do it and make them part of a team, all those strengths come to the surface. And rather than have people backbiting, you've got people really working together. That's the way it works. Yeah. Well, let's move on to the interview. So now I'm in the interview and we've talked about it is the, or you've talked about the job of the person being interviewed is to really engage and get the attention of the interviewer to be able to tell stories because this is all about storytelling, right? Right. Crisp way. And I also want to put the caveat on this, that you've got to be able to go through this entire thing of telling your story, telling why you're, why, how you did it, not just why you did it, but how you did it and how you engage people in about 30 minutes. Cause, and that's the whole thing from this is who I am. Here are the questions. This is why you're, I'm the best candidate out of it. And so it's, you've got to practice being crisp as an interviewee, but sometimes we, you know, you can go to TikTok and LinkedIn and all these folks which some of them are right or some of them are not out of that. But from an interviewer's point of view, what what do they do wrong? What is it that they could do better? What is it? What is their mindset when they come in? You said they come in and typically the, they've just looked at the resume again. So they're not really prepared to understand this person, if I hear you right. Well, I don't know that they're not prepared, although that's one that's one thing. That's just the reality of the way interviews are done. People do not sit down and take 15 minutes to look at the, for the most part, to review the entire resume, to review everything about the person. They're walking into the interview, and I'm not talking about from a recruiting standpoint now. I'm talking about the corporate, you know, the corporate interviewer. They just don't have the time and or they don't make the time. But from the interviewer's perspective, <clears throat> the object of their being there is to understand if the person fits in their team, in their region, in their group, to be able to move the ball forward. And to be able to do that, they have to have certain attributes, if you will. So they have to be, as we were talking earlier, collaborators. They have to be leaders and followers at different times in the initiative. They have to be able to come up with new ideas to make things 
better. And they have to be able to be okay in that agility of taking a back seat or a front seat as they progress through whatever position they're applying for. Mm -hmm. That will happen in any position as we, you know, as we are growing and changing and modifying in the economy and the industries across the world. So what they want from that person is to know how they got to where they are, why they got to where they are and where they want to go. About yourself is a real release of responsibility. Mm. It doesn't give any help to the interviewee. Mm-hmm. It really doesn't get to the nature of what that person, the interviewer, needs. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I view that setting up the interview in a little bit more quick way in order to allow the interviewee to be crisp and clear. And what I need to get to is to be able to tell them, and this is no trick. We're not trying to eliminate them. We are not the gatekeeper. We are not the business prevention department. Yeah. We are trying to throw them out. We're trying to pull. So if we want to pull them in, what we want to say is set it up a little bit. I know you check all the boxes. You've got all the things we need for the, for the skills in this position. Let's not spend our time talking about this. Let's spend our time talking about why and how you got to where you are in your career And give me some things that you've done specifically that you've been proud of, that you've accomplished what you were asked to do or what you set out to do for your employer. So from that, I do want to know what made you happiest in a company? What made you happiest in the job? Why did it make you happy? How did you think of doing this, going from point A to point B, which you can get off the resume? And those questions need to be answered and and you need to tell the interviewee We've got some time limitations here. We can only get to the information we want in this amount of time. So I'm going to ask you to be as crisp and as clear and as specific as you possibly can about these three things that you're going to tell me about. Sets it up for success. Yeah. Yeah. You and I both work in human resources and I tell people all the time, you can't make up the stories that we have. (laughs) (laughs) When you're dealing with people, you got stories. So I'm an interviewee. I walk into a meeting and they start with the behavioral questions or they, you know, the person, the interviewer is leads with the tell me about myself question, or they don't even ask questions about the job. They go off on, I see you golf. Let's talk about you golfing. And you feel like it's getting out of control and you're not really telling a good memorable story about why you out of it. What are some ways in which a person could actually take control of the interview and navigate? Because I tell people all the time, this is your 30-minute opportunity to impress someone. And part of the impression is kind of that first thing of developing others and creating a vision that people will follow. Well, it's a really tricky thing. Some interviewers are very offended by having the interviewee take control of the interview. However, if the interviewer is not in control of the interview, the interviewee, the person who's trying to get the job, I think that's established right away that the person is probably not a good interviewer. And that's, Mm -hmm. but once that's been established, you have those one, two, three things. Remember I asked you in the beginning, what are the three things that you're going to tell me that you're not going to let me leave the room until I know about you? That's where you have to make sure that you have three things in your mind that demonstrate your excellence in delivery, in impact for the organization. And so every person who's interviewing for a position, I think should have 
very clear, rehearsed in front of a mirror, three things that they've accomplished for the organization that made impact and make sure that they don't leave the interview without having said those three things. I think the other thing that they ought to be clear about, and this is something you and I have talked about a lot over the years, is an inter- as an interviewee, be clear about where you work the best and who you're going to work with that makes you the best. Every time you, you know, I coach this all the time. Every time you get a no that they didn't like you, blame it on fit. Somehow you didn't show up as a person who was going to thrive in that environment. It's not about you personally. It's a way of which you just didn't match up and you ought to count it as a blessing. Because if you know what it is you want, know where you do the best, know where you thrive and the kind of work you love to do, and you communicate that, then you'll find the match that you want. I think that's absolutely true. But I also think you do need to be careful about some of that. And and this has demonstrated to me in the last six months, a candidate who brilliant, brilliant career with a Fortune 100 the company she was interviewing with was a Fortune 200, but very impressed with people who came from the Fortune 100 mm-hmm. um, background. She worked very long hours and very hard and was very focused on about every three months, I'm going someplace away and I'm not taking my phone with me and I'm leaving and I can't be reached for five days. And that's because I work from six in the morning until midnight because I have multinational global responsibility and I'm on calls at all hours. And so I'm just taking, you know, a weekend and a day at the beginning and a day at the end, and I'm not taking any calls and I'm not going away. I call it work-life balance. As soon as she said the words work-life balance, that interviewer shut down and told me, no, she, she won't work. She wants work-life balance. We don't have anything about work-life balance here. I said, did we talk more about why that is? And I put this in, you know, in the profile. Mm-hmm. Just, just was absolutely shut down on that. It said to him that that was a person that wasn't going to be available when he needed her all hours of the day and night. She was very clear of working all hours of the day and night, but for a weekend and a day in the beginning, the day and the, the day after, she's just going to go away, you know, once a quarter and regroup. Yeah, and you know what? I, I know that for her, and it was disappointing. Yeah. However, I think there's something else up under his thinking, and I'm not sure she would have fit. Absolutely. And I say dodged a bullet. Yeah. That point, that's speaking to your point, excuse me. I think that you have to know what it is you need and where you know you're most successful. And if the interviewer doesn't see that, it's not always your fault in not demonstrating because you don't get the job doesn't mean that you are not, you know, you are not a good person or a person. you know, a brilliant person, right? It just wasn't the right place, right time, right guy. Right. 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 And I think that's the thing that too often we allow these interviews to define a part of who we are versus I'm fine. It may, it really may not be the right place for me. And as you said, you dodged a bullet out of it. Right. Right. The last thing I want to talk about is, you know, you, you jumped into this business with ideas around diversity, equity, and inclusion. And now it's moved to belonging. You know, I, I talk to people that you have to have inclusion before you can get to the DE or the B, the, you know, because if everyone doesn't feel in, that they have a place and that they can speak openly, then they're not going to collaborate with people who are not like them. Right. 
who think differently than them. And I'm not even always talking about, you know, ageism or gender identity or anything that like that. It could be simply you're from Harvard and I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. You know, how does it, how do you, when you're the person who's the, you know, maybe not like everybody else because of physical traits or, you know, the way you think politics, the works, how did, how, what, what coaching do you have for them on how to approach these interviews? Well, I think it's important to understand, you know, what, again, what the interviewer is looking for, what the company is looking for, how what you've done matches what they need or tell you they need and be clear about asking them what are the top three things you need besides the information that you know you've already given me and them to be the interviewer to be be able to ask you what are the things you need you know it's it's disheartening sometimes to me that there's still things out there that we're still doing even though we're focused on inclusion and equity and belonging that are still happening in 2022. And I'm sure it's going to continue, but we try to get better at it. I had a candidate who was going for a large position and her husband was also joining at the same time, a large consulting firm, name one of the top three. Mm -hmm. He's won a position at one of the big three. She's coming in and accepting a position with a fortune 200 in a large position and she asked me if it if I thought it would be all right to be able to tell the hiring manager that she had a toddler and needed occasionally to be able to be away from the office. And I paused and I said, what did the consulting company say to your husband when he told them he had a toddler and would need to be home a couple of days? And there was just silence. Mm. I don't think they know that he has a toddler. I said, so why do I know that you have a toddler? Why would you do that to yourself? And she she was going for a big job. And she said, I never thought of it like that. Mm -hmm. Well, the more we continue to put that out there, the more it's going to perpetuate. He didn't think anything of not telling his boss that he had a toddler and needed to be home. Why are you telling me? Right. That can translate into Anything that's diverse yeah, that we tell people that we don't need to. Yeah. Yeah. Just a thought. Yeah. Doing it. Mm -hmm. A lot of things that can be private that don't need to be shared. Mm -hmm. How that happens is not the boss's responsibility. It's yours. And you don't need to put that out there any more than your husband needed to put that out there. He chose not to. He would never think to. Why did you? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It'd be interesting to you know, to hear, and I encourage people, put something in the the notes down below. What questions do, what, what things do you put out there that probably perpetuate the stereotypes about who you are, what you represent, et cetera, ver- versus answering the question, and why is that important to you being able to do the job? Right. <laughs> Where does, you know, where does that impact come from? You know, it it all comes down to impact and fit for the organization. And if you fit and you give more than your job title and responsibilities to make the company successful, nobody should care. 
mm-hmm. not their business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Unfortunately, we've run out of time. As always. <laughs> And you know what I'm going to say, everybody, if you love this, share it. If you didn't love it, share it. And in fact, I would challenge you to share this with your boss, your colleagues, and people that you know are out here interviewing and ask them the question that we just asked. What are you sharing that's actually shooting yourself in the foot? Or are you having an interview that is really getting to the place where you're able to close the gap, to get from where you are today? To where you want to be tomorrow in the easiest or at least in a good way. So for now, Debbie, I'll see you next month, right? Yes, absolutely. All right, then. And if you have questions, please feel free to send us the questions. You can send them at info one at rllessons.com, or you can go to my website, remarkableleadershiplessons.com. Dot com and leave questions for us there. We love to answer the questions. And with that, see ya. Bye. That's a wrap. And I'm Denise Cooper. And you've been listening to Closing the Gap with Denise Cooper. Let me thank my good friend, Ivan G. Hall, for the background music. I'd like to ask you to do three things. One, if you liked it, share it with your friends. Let's build up our community. Two, subscribe so that you don't miss when a new episode drops. And lastly, if you've got a question or a comment, leave it below. I'd love to hear what you thought was good, what I could do better, and what topics you'd like to hear about. Let me thank my guests one more last time. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. Bye.